Okay, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Strategic Deals. So we're going to be talking today about strategic deals, and, and I think what we mean by that is how, if you're building a company, how do you think about the deals that you will do as, as part of and consistent with a larger strategic plan so that when you're thinking about early stage partnerships or early stage financing, or if you're a later stage company, larger strategic alliances or even exits are all part of something that we can call strategic. And so this is obviously a, a, you know, a fairly big topic, and we've got an amazing panel here today that represents really every side of the industry, so hopefully we'll have a lot of great information to help you think about how to do strategic deals. Before we introduce the panel, just to give us a sense of who we're talking to this morning, how many of you out here are involved in early stage technology companies or music tech companies? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, so about half the room. How many are part of the more traditional music or media industry, not necessarily tech companies? Okay, and what other factions do we have represented out here? We have <laughs> lawyers. lawyers, professional Occ services. Occupy San Francisco. Okay, all right, good. Well, that gives us a little bit of a sense of, of, of who we're talking to. All right, so before we get started, let's take a minute to have the panel introduce themselves. Really quite an illustrious group. Really an honor for me to be here as part of this group. So we'll, we'll start right to my right with Andrew. I'm Andrew Stess. I've been with Lyric Fine about since 2006. And ironically, it started with a strategic deal that I did with them when I was at All Media Guide and Chief Revenue Officer there. And my uh, role is to sort of shepherd in the, the big deals and grow the company. A lot of it's through strategic deals. A lot of it's through revenue-generating deals. And uh, this past year, we uh, launched with Nokia and HTC phones using Lyrics. And I can tell you some deals take a long time. Nokia, I was talking to them for about three and a half years before we closed the deal, and HTC was a short one that was only just over a year. So uh, hopefully we're going to have a lot more to talk about in the next few months as well. Thanks. Ted? Ted Cohen, Tag Strategic. We work with early stage companies, helping them deal with licensing deals, distribution deals, strategic partnerships, funding, all those kind of things. This past year has been my 30th year working in digital and music, so it's been... First 20 were kind of quiet. The last 10 were kind of interesting. <laughs> Jan? Hi, my name's Jan D'Alessandro, and I run business development and strategy for Backplane. Backplane is a platform that is built to help brands, public figures, artists, really any organized to unite their fan base and consumers around common interests. You know, if you think about Facebook was built to organize people around their friends, connect them with their friends, we've built a platform that allows everyone to connect people around similar interests. The first one we launched was littlemonsters.com for Lady Gaga. And now we're working with a number of other artists, Bloody Beat Roots, Guns N' Roses, a couple more coming down the pike, and a lot of brands, Coca-Cola, Nike, Cirque du Soleil, Hearst, Condé Nast. And, I, you know, anyway, there's lots of different flavors of partnerships. I'm also responsible for technology integration deals and distribution deals, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks. Gary? Good morning. I'm Gary Greenstein. I'm a partner with Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati based in their Washington, D.C. office. I've been there about six years and have represented over 350 different companies, mostly in the digital media space, doing licensing deals, strategic partnerships, M&A, IPO work. And prior to joining Wilson, Sonsini, I spent a decade representing the record industry. So I was the general counsel of Sound Exchange, worked at the RIAA, 
and outside counsel to various copyright owners. So I am one of those lawyers who switch sides and use the benefit of my knowledge in the past for my clients in the present. And I'm Eric Ferraro. I'm a partner at LeClaire Ryan. I focus my practice on the representation of uh, venture technology companies uh, with a, a strong focus in the digital media and music technology space. I was one of the founding partners of a company called Iris Distribution, a digital distributor formed in the earlier part of the decade and uh, was part of the, the large roll-up that happened last year with Sony and The Orchard and IOTA and a couple of other companies. So I uh, also have uh, experience in the space both from the both from the early stage technology perspective and of course as a as a corporate and uh, licensing lawyer as well. So we're going to really encourage audience participation in this discussion. So if you have questions or if you want to inject, you know, commentary into the discussion, please feel free to do so. Just raise your hand and we'll call on you and definitely looking forward to having you part of the discussion. So I think to get this started, when we talk about being strategic and doing strategic deals, it, it seems to be fundamental that in order to be strategic, you need to understand the market. And uh, it's hard to be strategic in a vacuum. So understanding the market and understanding the very specific nature of this market, which is the music technology and, and media market, is, is really important. And, and maybe, Ted, I can ask you to kick this off because I know you've got so much experience with the market. Can you help the, the audience think about what it means, what's important in terms of understanding the market? How, how should an early stage music technology company go about trying to do some market analysis or understanding the, the relevant aspects of the market in order to, to be strategic in their, in their transactions. I always love this phrase, but as I said in the uh, prep panel, my first half of my career, wow, first half of my career was working in artist development at Warner Records, and so I end up looking at our clients as developing artists, and in a lot of cases, we tell them, first of all, they don't seem to be aware of what's happening out there in a lot of cases. They, they seem to be oblivious. They'll say, we're the only company doing such and such. And we go, no, you're not. What about so-and-so, so-and-so? Who are they? So we so have you ever heard of Google? Go to Google and type in a description of what your company is and see how many other companies come up that are very similar. Um, Similarly, we end up spending a lot of time telling them that they're not ready to, quote, showcase. So when they say, can you get us a meeting with Doug Morris at Sony Music? Yeah, we can, and you'll go in and you'll flame out, and the second meeting is 10 times harder to get than the first meeting when you completely botch it. So uh, it's being aware of who your competition is, being aware of what your value proposition is. They'll say, and similarly, I'll keep going with the artist metaphor, but they'll say, you know, we've got this really great product. No, you've got a melody. You've got, like, you've got a tune. You really haven't, like, worked out the arrangement. You don't have a business model. You don't have a product roadmap. You don't have whatever. So um, it's really getting them ready to go in and have a great meeting. Um, there's a client that uh, we worked with for a while called Tunzi, which we're still really close with, that we beat the crap out of them in terms of prep for a particular meeting with a particular company. And we went in, and it was like watching your kid graduate from high school or college because they did the presentation. The presentation was great, but then 
the people in the room started saying, you said on slide three that you do whatever. Can you tell us more about that? And they were like, oh, I'm glad you asked. We do this, we do this, we do this. Well, why are you better than so-and-so? Well, they're really great, but we also do this, this, and this that they don't do. So they had it nailed. And it's really important, you know, know the market, know where you're going, know what your, we talked about exit strategy. Don't be too focused on your exit strategy. I mean, the Instagrams and the Tumblers happen, you know, I guess twice in a blue moon. Um, I'd say once, but it's pretty close. So be ready and don't try and, you know, showcase too early. If you, if your product isn't ready for prime time, then we show people a piece of it and we tease them with it. It's almost like leaking the single. Um, it really is about timing and it's really about knowing when you're ready to, you know, take the next step. I, also, I would add, sometimes it depends if you're a VC-backed company and the time you have versus you're not VC-backed. I look at Lyric Find, uh, which has a, a board of three, four people, four people, and never took VC money, had a, a longer uh, runway. We were able to grow organically and, and do deals and do products. Everything was about for the company. There was no other... Uh, reason to do something. It wasn't for somebody to say, hey, uh, the VC sent an email. We just read this in Wall Street Journal. You got to do this. Go that way. Go this way. It was all what's best for the company. What's in Every time we've had a, a board meeting, it's always been about that. I was at another company. I was we, we, turned, we turned money down. We turned, yeah, exactly. I'm on yeah. that board. Right, he's on the board too. Yeah, so I was at the, the only board experience I had back up till 2007 was Lyric Find. Then I joined CEO of a company called Music IP where we had a board that there were five, six guys who argued. And I went into this board meeting, I'm like, these are not the board meetings I, I was used to. And it was sort of like, do this, do that. And I think if you have a longer runway and you, you don't have that pressure, you can, you can do the right deals. And I think that's really important. Like one of the things we were talking about earlier is the importance of saying no. That when you're, you know, particularly when you're a startup, you have to be very strategic about the deals that you choose to do and the ones that you choose not to do. You know, if a partner comes in and demands a lot of customization, and which will make you change your product roadmap, and it's not ultimately going to make your product better, you have to be willing to say no. And so, you know, we are, we're very disciplined at Backplane that, you know, we just signed a deal with Condé Nast, and they asked us to build a few things. One was um, the ability to schedule posts in advance, sort of like you can with TweetDeck. And we, we all talked about it and said, you know, this is a feature that will make our product better. And I came in the next day, my engineers built it overnight because they were so excited about it. And so I think... You know, just as you're, you know, moving forward, really think about which are the deals that are going to make sense for you and which are going to derail you. I mean, it's easy to say, sure, we can do that, but it's really, there's an artist, Richie Houghton. I don't know, anybody familiar with Richie? So, Richie's amazing. And I was saying, his manager is a guy named Ben Turner, who just did this dance music summit in Ibiza last week. And I said, you guys have been together for like 10 years. Why? And he says, because Ben knows how to say no, even when the money is really, really good. He knows when it's not the right time to do the deal, take the money, endorse something. If it's, you have to be able to say no. And it's really hard sometimes. And when what Andrew was talking about, we were offered a lot of money for an investment in the company, but it just wasn't the right moment. It wasn't the right fit. And we just said, no, we'll just keep going. Things are good. Yeah, I think it's important as a company to figure out what you're trying to do as opposed to necessarily trying to please everybody else. If you have a clear vision, then having that vision can help you determine what types of deals may make sense. And if you're in a tunnel just building, if you're a, an entrepreneur founder of your company and you're building a product 
you may have tunnel vision for what you're doing, and then it may be, oh, I'm getting a call from Scooter Braun. Justin Bieber wants to do a deal with us. Let me look at that. And then you get something else, and you, you go in another direction. It's try to have that focus, but also have people that you can look to to help center you to try to figure out whether that's a strategic relationship as to who you bring on your board, your uh, financial investors, your outside lawyers, someone like Tag Strategic, because you may be focused so narrowly that you may make wrong decisions. And it's very easy to do a bad deal. It takes a lot of work and effort to do a good deal. And you have to put in that time and effort to make sure you do the good deals. Anyone can do bad deals. And lots of people have done very bad deals. But how many people do the really good deal that helps take them to the next level? So um, that's, a, that's a good segue into a discussion about thinking about raising money, which is one of the first strategic deals that any you know emerging technology or music company will will want to do and you know any of you who were at the the venture capital uh discussion prior to this one heard and you'll continue to hear if you've been out in the market how difficult it is to raise money and it is and there's a lot of temptation to take the money in front of you uh, and sometimes that's okay and you know, a company has to raise money and you have to you have to balance considerations um, but again, it's important to understand the ecosystem and the market in which you are trying to build a company. And for a music technology company, there's a difference if you're a B2C company, if you're a B2B company, if you're artist services, if you're building you know, a music streaming service or you're building a, a service that's focused on the, the media companies, a lot of times one path will be strategic or corporate investment. and these are difficult considerations and decisions with any type of emerging company, but I think in particular in the music technology and, and media space, uh, particularly difficult. And we, we talked, the panel talked about this a little bit earlier, and, and Jan, maybe you can start off a discussion about the considerations when considering strategic, so-called strategic or corporate investment. Yeah, definitely. So um, my company was founded by Troy Carter, who's Lady Gaga's manager, and two tech entrepreneurs, a guy named Matt Mickelson, who'd had, a, a, uh, his last company was a platform for normalizing trading across hedge funds that he sold to Goldman Sachs, and he had an ad tech company before that, and a guy named Alex Moore, who um, was one of the co-founders of Palantir, a big data company here in Palo Alto. And it was interesting, you know, what each of them brought to the table was a very unique and different perspective. You know, they each, you know, invested... Uh, personally, but also, you know, bring a lot to the table and, you know, united over the, the common desire to build a platform that would allow artists to connect, initially, you know, to connect with their fans and to organize all of their social media in one place, something that they would own and own the relationship, you know, with the fan and realize that there was a lot of opportunities. So I actually, um, you know, when you look at, you know, the investment from, from Troy Carter, not only did he give equity, but he brings a lot to the table in terms of, you know, his knowledge, contacts, making introductions. Um, you know, when, when, at, when Troy is asked, what, what are the decisions that you make in deciding to invest into a company? He says, first and foremost, it's having a dynamic CEO and founder. And, you know, he found that in Matt and um, said that, you know, why do companies like Menlo Ventures and Greylock keep referring deals to him? It's because he says he shows up and he brings a lot to the table in terms of, you know, as a board member, bringing opportunities, making introductions, things like that. We, you know, now have just um, 
in the middle of closing our, a round where we had several strategic investors, you know, amongst them Coca-Cola. And when we looked at, you know, working with Coca-Cola, you know, they've got a strategy of taking equity in startups. They've invested in Spotify. They invested in a sort of healthcare uh, company called Endomoto and also music dealers. And when they looked at us, they thought, you know, we fit within their strategy of a company that not only do they want to own a stake in, but that they wanted to have a deep commercial relationship as well. So we actually negotiated the equity terms simultaneously with a commercial deal that was really negotiated at arm's length. And, um, where they will be one of the you know key you know initial ten partners for us. Um, build it. We're building a, um, a site for them that's helping them connect with their customers, lining up around their marketing initiatives. And interestingly, they originally had asked us for exclusivity, and then when they decided to take an equity investment, they actually realized that they didn't want to be our exclusive beverage partner. So it was really interesting. Um, but you know what they've shown themselves to be is a really great partner, making introductions to us, bringing us to you know join them in presenting at you know, appropriate venues, and really working very closely with us to to connect with their consumers both online and offline in a meaningful way, in a, in a way that they can own the relationship. So, Gary, further thoughts about taking strategic investment from corporate partners or? or general considerations about raising capital for uh, for an early stage uh, music tech company? Yeah, so one of the things that I think you have to be careful of if you're in the music space and let's say you're a streaming company or you're using copyrighted works, there's a difference between a strategic investment and a copyright owner who makes a demand upon you to say, in order to license my content, you also need to give me 10% of the company. I don't really view that as strategic. I I don't want to use the term extortion, but it's really a gun to that's the... A, that's, your, a, that's a rough word. <laughs> well, that's a legal I, conclusion. When we asked for 40% of Music Maker, that wasn't yeah. extortion. So I, I do think you, you have to figure out there will be those situations when you're trying to... or you need to do a deal with someone, and that person or entity is going to condition the deal with you for an equity component. And then what you have to do is you have to fight like hell to give up as little equity as possible, because... No matter what people say, I don't believe that a licensor investor in your company is going to be contributing the value that you would expect for the equity you may be giving them. They're not going to be attending your board meetings. They're not going to be helping you. You may think you're aligned, but they're always going to be adverse to you. They take investments or demand investments in lots of companies, and frankly, they're gambling because they don't want to play favorites. And if you go out of business, it hasn't cost them anything, arguably. They've, they've not put cash into the company. So I think you have to distinguish between that and someone, like in the case that Jan described, where it's Coca-Cola, where you're doing a commercial deal with someone where it does make sense, where there are mutual benefits. When you're doing a deal with a licensor, I'm not sure it's mutually beneficial in the sense that you would traditionally think it's beneficial and that you may get access to their content. But it's not beneficial on the terms at which you're giving up equity and paying them certain fees, paying huge advances where there may be no expectation of recoupment. I think you, you do have to look at those very differently and, more importantly, very carefully. And also, even in, when you're structuring a deal, you often want to include performance-based warrants so that a partner who is taking equity has some skin in the game, that they're, not going, to, they're going to get more if they actually help you grow your business. And that actually, Jan's point is an excellent one. Trying to figure those out. So if you're doing a deal with, let's say, a brand or an artist, which is very popular, what are the, the benchmarks for an artist? You know, is it stay out of jail? 
you know, don't get arrested for, for beating up your girlfriend, that doesn't necessarily help you. What are the affirmative benefits that the artist can do? Is it talking? Is it tweeting? Is it using the service? Do they really care about it? You know, fans of an artist will, will pretty quickly figure out whether or not the artist really cares and loves your product. You know, if they don't, and you're requiring them to do four tweets a week, uh, and the tweets are kind of meaningless, it's not really going to be very beneficial. And it's easier to get a divorce than to get rid of someone who you've given equity to. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) But it may may cost you more to get a divorce if you live in California, speaking from experience. But But it's worth it. Okay. So, uh, real world, uh, seriously, a real-world example, I was on the board of iMeme. iMeme was a great company. I think Dalton and Steve Jang and, and Shane Tobin, they were doing some great stuff. Um, one of the labels, you can figure out on your own if you Google it, had a major equity stake in iMeme, and we thought that was a license for success because they had taken a big equity stake, so why would they let us go down? Um, they let us go down. In fact, they made it very difficult to stay in business at the time, and we ended up having to uh, liquidate the company overnight and sell it to MySpace for $11. And then MySpace sold for $15 and somebody made four bucks. But uh, it really did go very badly, seriously. And at the time when, as I came into iMeme, as I left EMI and I had run global business development at EMI, and in the board meeting when they said, we want to give this large equity stake to one of the labels, I said, it's not, you're you're fooling yourself because we had taken, before I got DMI, seriously, I mentioned 40% of a company called Music Maker. I don't know if anybody remembers that. But um, it basically actually killed the company because there was so much equity given to a label that they couldn't get any other strategic partners. So you really, really have to think long-term. Don't look for a short-term you know, fix because you'll end up very unhappy. And there's, there's deals where you, if you say no, like Ted talked about earlier, saying no is important, but maybe two years down the road, that is a good deal. And you, you grow the, if you grow the company, if you look early on, and it's different with the labels as opposed to your tech company that has, it's not a, if you're not a service, you're not having to deal with the labels, it's a whole different thing. So now you try to structure your deals. Some are big revenue generating deals. Some are just marketing deals. But sometimes, I mean, great example is I'm sitting in front of Ty here, my buddy, and we did a deal with Grayson at Lyric Find a few months ago where over the course of probably two, three, four years, we've talked about doing some sort of deal together, but it didn't make sense for both companies till this year, and both companies were really happy. And I mean, it, it, w- it was great, So, but it was like three years down the road, and we've had all these discussions. So timing is so important, and it's not necessarily always about revenue. It's not always about... Um, Marketing is just have to look at when when is the right opportunity for both companies and I like doing deals uh, That both companies are happy some people don't like to do that some people like to grind you till you're unhappy And you do the deal anyway, but you're miserable and you spent all this time on it And you end up with a deal that is terrible I don't like to do that and I've tried to do my whole career that way and I think in the short term Maybe you sometimes in the short term you'll cost yourself a little bit But overall you'll you'll win a lot more as a company if you do the right deal I always say I'm the most conflicted person you'll meet in this space, so I'm going to go to the other side of what I said. If giving up some equity to the labels or to the publishers or whoever the rights holders are if you're doing a music deal reduces your capital costs. So if you're giving up 2% to each label and you're giving up 1% to each publisher and that's reducing your advance from 250000 down to 100000 
it may be worth it because in, in, as you're burning through startup money, that money is really important to you. And so what if you gave up a point or two at that point? It's just um, you don't want to give up big chunks, but it sometimes can mitigate the costs of uh, getting the licenses that you need to exist. Right, and I think it's the same analysis when you're talking about technology integration deals, that you know everyone must go through the sort of build-by partner decision. So for instance, we've integrated um, Google Translate into our product so that our users can tra chat in you know 80 different languages that's translate translated into one language. That is something that we will never build. And so there's you know no reason for us to try to build something like the same thing. We've integrated Spotify and SoundCloud and YouTube. Are we gonna build a video player? No. Of course not. You know, there's the fantastic people out there who we can partner with and integrate with so that we can focus on our core business and let everyone else do what they do best. So I think this question about how do we evaluate potential strategic partnerships, especially when there's a, a hybrid of a, a commercial deal and an investment, is a, a really critical exercise for for any emerging company to, to think about. And Jan, the example that you gave with Coca-Cola, where they initially wanted an exclusive, but then ultimately didn't want to restrict the potential growth of your company because they took an equity position, is you know a very forward-thinking type of perspective. And I, you know, Coca-Cola is obviously a sophisticated partner. I'm not sure that that's always the case. The tension anytime you're doing a deal with a strategic or a corporate partner is to try to keep the commercial relationship at arm's length and divorced from the investment. And I, I think that the example that, that you gave, Jan, is, is one that really does reflect that it's companies like Coca-Cola, even more than the entrenched media companies, that are sophisticated and often make for the best mm -hmm. strategic partners. And maybe we could just talk a little bit about thinking about building your company uh, around potential strategic relationships with brands rather than media companies. Because I certainly see a lot of early stage music technology companies and, and music companies that are still focused on doing deals with the labels, the artists, and the media companies. And they are, I think... But you sometimes, you need, sometimes you need those rights you to certainly do, do the Coca-Cola deal. You need course. to have... Yeah. If, you need, so. if you need, you know, rights, that's a, that's a different issue. The brands don't have the rights. But the, the market opportunity, building businesses that, that are built around brand partnerships, I think is a wide that's open great. field. Mm -hmm. and maybe we could just talk about that. Andrew, do you, you want to talk about that? It's probably more of a Jan thing than me. <laughs> well, I mean, what I was going to say is, you know, it's interesting because, you know, prior to joining Backplane, I was at Yahoo. Um, you know, at Yahoo, well, is a media company and a technology company. But, you know, on, from the media side, what the ad sales people kept coming back and telling us, I, I ran business development for sports entertainment and lifestyles. But the ad sales people kept coming back and saying the big brands, what they really wanted was something that they could own. They were tired of, you know, buying buttons and banners and paying the money, and at the end, when the term was up, they had nothing to show for it, and very little data as to you know how they were reaching consumers, how consumers were interacting with their content, and so I think that's something that you know what we're doing at Backplane is something that's very attractive to the brands because it's something that they come in really truly as a partner with us when they you know sign up to work with us. They're using our platform to reach their own consumers. They own the relationship. They can identify them. We're providing them a great deal of data as to you know what what who are their influencers. 
we're helping them sort of market to the top 1% and seeing which of these people have you know, a large following. How is their content being shared? Are people sharing the content that these users are posting out to other social networks? And so from the brand standpoint, you know, we're a logical partner because we're helping them build something that they can own. And you know, we're doing, you know, they're never going to hire 20 engineers to go out and do what it is that we're doing. And, um, what, they, and that what they bring to the table is you know, the ability to reach their consumers. They've got all these fantastic marketing initiatives, you know, both physical and online um, initiatives. That, that's just one of the examples. You know, we're we're going to be working with Nike to build you know, a community around women's fitness. You know, you think about, you know, that's a brand who stands for something. Other, you know, other brands, you know, that don't, like um, some credit card companies we're talking to, there's not like a logical sort of interest-based thing, but what they have is, you know, an ability to reach a lot of people. They've got people who have a preference for which card they're going to use and a way to, you know, you know unite with those people around, you know, their spending habits or whatever it may be. But, um, the, you know, the deals are structured. Sometimes they're just going to be partners. Many, most of these people will not invest in our company, but they will be partners who will pay us a license fee to, to use the technology that we're building. Eric, when, yeah. when you think about that, it, I think it helps to put yourself in the mindset of the party you're talking with because the brand comes to a relationship from a different perspective than, say, a rights owner. A rights owner will say, you're building your business entirely off of my content. Every bit of money you make is because of what I provide. Therefore, I want 50, 70, 85% of the revenue you generate. And you may have a profit margin of it's either negative, you know, in the case of some well-known companies, or, or very slim. And they'll say, oh, you'll make it up on volume or we'll extract a lot of money. Brands, though, are used to a different relationship where it's they're paying you to advertise, to reach an audience. And if you can think about what you're providing them that that satisfies what they're looking to do that is also beneficial to you, it's a very different dynamic. And one that if you understand the language of the person you're talking to. And the language that you use when you're talking to a brand may not be the language that you use when you're going into a label. You know, if you go into a record company and you say, oh, we're all about promotion, we're gonna give you this great promotion, et cetera. The labels today, they don't care about promotion. They want money. Everything in their mind is promotional. So you've yeah. got to tailor your language. And when, you know, Ted, when he takes companies in and he preps them, I think that's part of it is knowing the language that you need to use when you're talking to these different potential partners. Because number one, it shows a certain intelligence level about what you're doing. And if you don't show that level of intelligence, why is someone going to want to do a deal with you or invest in your company? There was an event that I went to in uh, Europe last December, which was a branded entertainment conference, and it was eye-opening in terms of what companies are willing to spend when you bring them the right product. So American Express had spent a fortune on that onstage uh, concert thing using Jonathan Demme and other people to direct videos, live concert videos with Coldplay and others. Uh, Hyundai, did, I don't know how many people saw the Remix project. There's not a Hyundai car in the whole thing. At the beginning, it says Hyundai Presents, and then you watch this amazing footage of Skrillex and other, I forget who else, The Doors, and it's what, Skrillex and The Doors, and I can't remember who else. But, and I watched the whole thing, but it was very late at night. Anyway, uh, it was an amazing piece of footage, but I kept saying, so Hyundai doesn't have a car in here. There doesn't happen to be, as you look out the window of the studio, you don't see a Hyundai driving by. They said they were very happy just to be associated with the project and that they got everything out of it that they wanted. 
and they spent a lot of bucks on it. I mean, they spent a lot of bucks on it. So it's not just always about impressions. It's about brand association with really cool projects. So you have to bring them something. As Jan's saying, it's not about banners and buttons. It's about bringing them some real meat that they can attach themselves to. Uh, a friend of mine just did the Rolling Stones with Citibank. It was good for Citibank. It was good for the Rolling Stones. I'm not sure if it was great. I'm not really sure if it was great. There was It, it was... Citibank presents the Rolling Stones, and would you like to buy your tickets with Citibank with a Visa card? I'm not sure it it worked. I'm not sure it was the best fit, but it was it was a good fit. So uh, there could have been something a little more aspirational if they had more time, but it came together really quickly. You know, I'm looking up. I see my friend John Harkin from TRI Studios in the back, and you know TRI Studios is doing some really interesting things with brands where. You know, this is a recording studio in San Rafael that was built by Bob Weir. It's, you know, amazing. You know, it's got this incredible Meyer Constellation sound system, the best sound quality. Musicians come to the Bay Area and want to play there because it's so incredible. And these guys put together, you know, a presentation a couple months ago about bringing in brands as the patrons of the arts to develop a deep and meaningful relationship with the artists where they're not just slapping their logo onto something or performance. Just like, you know, what Ted was talking about examples, like where you're really allowing the brand to connect with, you know, artists at a level where they share, you know, they're attracted to people, they're attracting the same audience and that it's a very sort of authentic um, relationship. Let me, let me ask a little bit about this idea about forging partnerships, and, and Andrew, maybe you can speak to this, especially from Lyric Fine's perspective. You know, I think the, the music technology space is, is really starting to open up. We've seen, you know, dramatic sort of vitality in the market in the last, you know, four or five years in particular, but it, it's still, uh, it still faces, you know, maybe more challenges than, let's call it, traditional high-tech um, and so we see a lot of cross-partnerships and synergistic relationships, especially between the B2C companies and the companies that are serving the artists um, because of the pressure um, to be sort of a, an, an all-in-one solution. And I think one of the ways for an, er an early-stage company to be strategic is to not limit yourself to one vertical, to say, I'm, I'm B2C only. You know, there are all sorts of opportunities for, for integration and partnerships. And maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I was thinking about that a minute ago, uh, talking about brands. A lot, of, a lot of people here are B2B, and uh, it's a little different. It's a lot different when you go into a meeting when you're a B2C company versus a B2B company. And um, sometimes it's, like I said earlier, it's about revenue generating. Sometimes it's about, it's about that partnership. I've always felt on the B2B side, uh, you can, you know, early on in my career, I was one of the first hires at Grace Note, And we did a lot of deals where we wanted to get the CD recognition technology out there. You never know who you're going to do a deal with, whether it's a small company or a big company. Great example, uh, I did a deal with a company called SoundJam. And that became iTunes, you know. And and today, I think you know, we go into meetings, and uh, you know, everybody's talking about, oh, I want to do the deal with this big company or that big company. But a lot of small companies become medium-sized and big companies. So, and how you treat your partners is important in doing those deals because they're gonna they're gonna grow. Another thing, and there's a lot of very smart, experienced people in this room. But for the people that haven't done a lot of these deals, never go into a meeting with a company that you think you'd be perfect acquisition for and say to them in the meeting, you guys should buy us. You know, and I've, I've heard stories of companies, of very experienced folks saying that. Hey, you should, and never, never, never do. Let, let it be their idea. And uh, 
you know, sometimes I'm thinking it in the meeting. I'm like, oh my God, this is, we'd be perfect for that. But, um, and sometimes it does happen. When I was at AMG, we did a deal with, uh, I had done a deal with Macrovision a couple years earlier, and then they had called me in to do a new meeting. And in the five minutes, I could tell when I showed up and there were eight or nine people in the room, and they were all executive vice presidents and corp dev, that that was not a sales meeting. That was going to be a uh, corporate development meeting uh, and quickly sort of changed the way I did it. So you have to, you just never know uh, when you're going to do these, but never, never say you, check, you guys should buy us. And that's... If anything, you learn. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very smart guy who's now at Samsung by the name of David Unn, who was uh, head of content at Google and working on YouTube. And I had him, we did a keynote interview at Meetum a few years ago. And uh, I set him up. Uh, basically, I said, I have an opening question. I'm not going to tell you what it is. And just before we went out there, I panicked. And I said, here's the opening question. And he said, go for it. And I walked out and I said, let's, let's ease into the interview here. Why are you trying to fuck Warner Records over? <laughs> and he goes, I'm not trying to fuck them over. I'm trying to let them realize that we need to do a partnership. I'm not going to write them a big check. That YouTube is going to write them big checks, but we're not going to write them a big check in advance. He said, your friends at the music companies want big checks. They don't want partnerships. We need to like really craft a partnership that works for both sides. That was five years ago. I think five years later, um, all the labels will tell you and all the publishers will tell you that it was smart to ultimately do their deals with YouTube and get the revenue that they're getting because they weren't able to control consumer behavior, but they were able to ultimately monetize it. Right, I think that's, you know, that hits at sort of the crux of what the key is in structuring a, a partnership that works is that do you have interests that are aligned? And if you're, you know, your goal is that you're both trying to reach consumers, you're both trying to make monetize, and if your interests are aligned in how you're going to do it, you know, I think, you know, for when you kicked off the question, you think about, you know, do you have a B two B business or a B two C business? Many of us have B two B to C businesses, yeah. where we, it's essential that we partner with the content, you know, rights holders, and that we work together to reach the consumers. You know, I've had this discussion. There's another panel later, a woman named Judy Estrin, who's a brilliant, amazing woman who's uh, running a company called audience. Event Live. Oh, is she? Yep. Oh, I didn't even know Judy. I'm saying, but um, you know, Event Live. Yeah. Um, it's one of our clients. You know, it's is a, it one of your clients? No, he said she's in the audience. Yeah, anyway, that being client. said, but no, but we talk, talk a lot about that, and it's like they're also doing really interesting thing with brands and sponsors, and you know, again, with everyone's interests are the same in reaching the ultimately reaching the consumer and providing them with high quality content. Um, David's a, I mean, David is a client of ours, and I have to tell you, I mean, I keep talking about this prep thing. We went through a little bit of prep, but he was already on his game. I won't say I had anything to really do. I literally wrote him, I said, uh, we did three calls in like three hours, and I wrote him an email saying, I'm not sucking up. You were fucking brilliant. He was so, he had the answer to every question, and they were the right answers. They weren't canned. I mean, the, there were three separate conversations. He didn't say the same thing the same way twice, but he knew what button to push to get people to basically realize the value of what he's doing. Because you have to admit, they're not the first people to do it, but he's, they're doing it better than anybody's done it before. I think one of the things, I, remember the old BASF commercials, we don't make the products, we make them better? That's always how I looked at a lot of the companies I worked with. We're not making your product, we're not telling you how to build it, but we ho hopefully our part will make your product better. And if we're doing that, then 
that's that's a good thing. And in lyrics, which is important, I, to also realize that sometimes you're just an ingredient. Yeah, you're just you're an not ingredient. the end game. You yeah. are an ingredient. If you position yourself as a really good exactly. ingredient, yeah, because you know, you while lyrics are the most important thing to to lyric find as a company, we're just a, a part of a bunch of different other companies. And uh, if we can ma- help make the product better, it's interesting. Six years ago, seven years ago, I always felt, man, lyrics would be great for this. Lyrics would be, and and. It went from a, that'd ah, be nice to have, to now it's a must-have. It's part of search, it's part of just display, and, you know, most, it's, it's out there. And to see that evolution of it go from, especially a company you're working with, to go from nice-to-have to a must-have, where the, the bigger companies are coming to you. And, again, like I said earlier, Nokia took three, three-and-a-half years, and it had to be the right product, the right timing. Uh, it, it's nice to see that growth and to be in the position we're in now. It's, it's great. So let, let me pose this hypothetical or this this situation that I think is is a real one and maybe one of the the most difficult challenges for a company that is looking to think strategically about getting the deals done that you want to get done. I think one problem um, is that a lot of companies approach their particular product or their technology um, from their own personal pain point and that's a great starting point but you also have to understand the value proposition for a potential partner. And let me, let me give you two examples of this. Especially when dealing with artists, labels, and traditional media companies, I think you're going to find that, you know, historically they can be a little bit um, resistant to change and disruption through technological solutions. And, you know, think about, for instance, Napster, okay? Now, Napster was a great solution to the pain point of the peer community that wanted access to music, but they did nothing to sell the idea to the media industry. And, you know, looking backwards on that, there was an opportunity there. I don't know if it would have got the deal done, but there was tremendous data that could have been harnessed by the media companies. But nobody sold it on that basis. It was just... Well, uh, okay. <laughs> So I got hired by Napster in October of 99 to go out and do the label relations. And actually, I got hired to be the CEO, but I turned it down because I, which wasn't, I should have taken it because it would have been a cool thing to tell my kid. But instead, I went to work. Who knew? Who knew? Anyway, I got, I ultimately said, look, let's date for a while. And so I was doing label relations. And this is a true story. And I've said this before. Um, they said, go out and see if you can do some deals with the labels. And I came back with a deal with one of the labels. And they said, okay, keep them going for a while. We really don't think we have to do the deal. Uh, the strategy was the congressman's daughter. If the congressman's daughter was using Napster, she would show it to dad. And dad would realize that copyright laws were outdated. And they would change copyright law. And that was the first wave was, we're going to get, we're going to hire. Uh, they had Manus Cooney, who used to be Orrin Hatch's uh, chief of staff, they had all the, uh, Karen, I can't remember, Karen Robb, who were lobbying basically to revise copyright, completely throw it out and redo it. Like that's an easy thing to do. When that didn't work, then it was, hey, can we do those label deals? By then, there was such animosity between the rights holders and Napster, even though, granted, if everybody had cooler heads, it would have been a much better outcome for everybody, but there was just too much anger. It was two, it was, a, it was two years into it, and everybody went, nah, we'd rather see you go away. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I don't know if it had been approached from a different perspective to start with, whether it would have 
you know, ultimately been a less nasty and contentious relationship, but there was a value proposition there that could have been better leveraged. And, right. and, and a more current example of that is with respect to live performances. Now, the reality is that at every concert you go to, everybody is recording the show on their mobile device. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's tremendous resistance among the artists and labels to anything that is you know, unsanctioned recording. But there's a lot of technology that is being developed right now to really make this a valuable experience for the, the, the artists and, and a way labels to themselves. It's being done. The, the, the monetization is, is what's crazy. We can't, we can't control consumer behavior anymore, but we can monetize it. There's a company here in San Francisco called CrowdSync that's doing some great stuff with crowdsourced video. And the resistance to it, it it's, it's unrealistic. When the ushers are holding their phones up now and recording the show. Used to be the ushers were the ones who told you to put your phone down. Now the ushers are fighting to be closest to the stage. But, but it's, an, it's an important point because you do, if you're talking with VCs and you're doing something that some may argue is clearly a violation of some provision of the Copyright Act, and there are, there are prohibitions on recording, you know, essentially um, recording an artist's performance live without authorization, you have to think about how are you going to explain that to potential investors when they just ask the simple question, are you lawful? And you say, well, we're talking with so-and-so, and they think we have an argument. You know, is someone, some people may put money in and they may say, you know what, we're going to create that firewall, hopefully the veil, the uh, corporate veil won't be pierced and they'll be able to be immune from liability. But you do have to have an understanding. Just because you can do it and just because it's really cool and that you think a lot of people will want to do it doesn't mean it's legal. And it doesn't mean that you can get away with it or that smart money is going to come into the company. I know I tell too many stories, but years ago, before I went to EMI in 99, there was a company called Enso, which was part of Muzak. And they were having trouble doing deals, and they called me in, and they said, we want to hire you. And I said, okay. I said, do your pitch. And his pitch was, we think we can beat you in court, but we think it'd be quicker to do a deal, so what do you think? Yeah. I went, and that's not working? <laughs> so we ended up uh, redoing their thing, and they ended up getting deals, but... We always argue with clients, don't go in and say why you need the deal. Again, it's exactly what Eric's saying. It's why do they want to deal with you? What are you bringing to the table? How are you advantaging? How are you moving the needle? How are you moving the ball forward? What are you doing to increase ROI, ARPU, whatever that metric is? And know what that metric is for each person that you're seeing because it's not the same metric. I do disagree when you said, uh, I think Gary said about promotion. Sometimes companies want to go in and meet with the biz dev people at the labels and it's the wrong person to meet with. You do want to meet with the marketing people because you may have an amazing tool and you end up going into the biz dev people and they say, what advance are you going to pay us to use your promotion tool? Pardon? You know, it's like, really? So you have to like figure out it's not going into the same person each time. It's not even going into the same department. It has to be, as they say in the UK, bespoke. It has to be customized for every person you're meeting with. Right. No, I just, I'm thinking back of your story about Napster. I, at, in, back in 1999, I was at AOL and I was doing all the music deals, which at the time was, you know, really begging the label, say, let us even put up 30-second clips. We are going to help you build an audience. And I think so much has changed between 1999 and now. 
And but the the thing is that there's now they there's get so paid for those thirty seconds. Well, clips. that's right. They get paid for everything. But the, but the thing is, there's so much free content available online. And I think the challenge is is where the technology companies can really come in and help is like helping, you know, make sure that the highest quality content reaches the consumer, and making sure that people get paid, whether that be, you know, via sponsors or via you know, you know, pay per view, but. I think that we are still in a place, I, my personal belief is that we're still in a place where there's so much free, good quality free content out there that it's hard to get people to pay. I think that's what is so interesting about what you know companies like Event Live are doing is because they're really raising the bar in terms of quality and, and really helping um, monetization as well. I can't miss the opportunity. People say that deals are easier to do with rights holders now and I reply that with desperation comes great vision. <laughs> Uh, let me just ask the audience one more time. Does anybody have a, a question or a comment or want to participate? Yeah, right here. I guess my comment, first of all, is you guys are imparting so much wisdom today to everybody in the room because I do strategic partnerships for a living. Everything you're saying is spot on. The question I guess I want to ask you is, you know, I, uh, for a long time, uh, longer than I care to admit, I've done a lot of deals for startups with established artists and their managers uh, direct. And of course, labels too, but mostly with artists directly. And a lot of times the artists do want equity in the startup. And I'm always encouraging the startups not to do it because of most favored nations. And, you know, you just can't, you'll, you'll give away all your equity if you do it for every artist. So I well, want your it, you know, it, it depends. I mean, if you set aside, if you, you set aside 15%, let's say you set aside yeah. 10%, and you say we're going to split this up, and we know going into it that we're giving up 10% of the company but to rights holders. However many artists, you know, you could do it 100 times. Well, no, with artists, that's a yeah. tougher one with, yeah. with, with key rights holders. But what I find interesting is, I mean, I've seen some pushback. I mean, Troy's done an amazing job with Backplane, but there's been some other manager invested companies that's, that there's a lot of uh, um, not animosity but a lot of envy and a lot of whatever it's like well I'm not going to work with that company because they're funded or they're mm. owned by so and so are you seeing any pushback? We, we haven't seen that and I think you know we have had you know people come in and ask for big equity chunks you know Troy and and Lady Gaga were there in the beginning so down the road there isn't the pot's not you know, the pot is full. There's not a lot of room. But we don't find that because I think our product speaks for itself. And when you've built, you know, the product that is best in class, I think, you know, people are, you know, willing to, to move on from their, you know, personal beliefs that they should be getting wealthy off of it, I think too. it's a tipping point you between know. what you just said, Janet. Um, if you've got something that stands alone that they want to be a part of, that's a motivation for them. That's right. As opposed to something you're, that they think you're going to, they're going to help make your company. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they well, want that, a piece That is of it. a bit. Yeah. They do think artists have this view that they will bring their X number of million Twitter followers. Then the, you see all these statistics about how many people have signed up and how many people are active and how, how many, what's the percentage that are inactive? Is it really bringing you anything? And with artists, you know, where are the Jonas Brothers today? How many kids... Right, but you know, how many people care about where the Jonas Brothers are? And if you had given I them 5% of equity, <laughs> or even Miley Cyrus, you know, so who, who, is popular, who is popular today may not be who is popular tomorrow. And if, they, if all they're bringing is their current popularity... That can end pretty quickly. Uh, so I think you do have to be careful. And then from the, the equity component, if you are creating a pool, you need to make sure you do it correctly and figure out what are you going to be sharing with them? Because many of your early stage companies may not have any profits for many years at a time. So what is that pool going to? And then how do you, you know, are there preferences for people who come in early versus later? So you're treating them like a normal investor. 
And that, that's going to be expensive for you as well in terms of you're hiring your lawyers to do a deal with an artist and you, know, you have to evaluate all of those opportunities. I, I, I think it's impossible to set black and white rules around this. You know, sometimes you just have to be in a position where you're going to equitize influencers. But I think a really good strategy is to, first of all, make sure you set performance metrics around that. Just like It's not enough to just bring your, your million followers. You know, and, and really what you want to do, especially with artists, again, depending on the, on the service or the business, but you, you need to position those artists as evangelists to bring other artists in and to set performance metrics on their equity for bringing other artists and their followers in. You can't give equity to every artist. You, you, you'll spend all your equity getting a, a rights catalog. But if you're strategic about it and you find the right influence, like a Lady Gaga, uh, who can both have the you know, the, the personal power to bring others in. And then, you know, there is a tipping point at which people will follow because it's the place to be. So you just have to be smart about it. You set up a pool. You've got to set up the right structure. It's got to be incentive-based. Question. Other questions? Yes. I don't know if you all are familiar with this. Uh, last year, Obama passed the Jobs Act, and one of the provisions said that equity, well, basically that people could buy equity through crowdfunding platforms, right? And the SEC hasn't really passed the regulation to actually make that happen yet. So I'm curious about what you all think, how that is going to change how companies are getting funded, and if it's going to make a big difference in terms of, like, if in the angel funding stage or in the, like, in the seed stage, mm -hmm. and um, also how it's going to affect venture capital funds who are funding these new companies. Hmm. That's, I think that's a really... I, I mean, I, I suspect a lot of people are going to lose money. You know, <laughs> it's, it, frankly, it's a lot of people are going to, to be like the penny stock market, and they're going to put in money, and they think they're going to hit it rich, and a lot of people are going to lose money. Uh, you know, Eric, I think, is more of a corporate attorney, and so maybe more up to speed right. on some of but that. But I think my... So, Eric, my understanding is that the way the crowdfunding <laughs> platforms work today, they're not treated as investments. They're... Oh, not really donations, but it's an, an exchange where you're, you're buying an experience and you get something in exchange. Like, and that whoever is launching the campaign has to give back a T-shirt right, or right. something so that it's not considered actually buying a stock. But well, so, the, the so those is whether or not they're doing, they are taking an investment, and in, in yeah. for all of yeah, those who so, went to so law the, school, if you've got a security with a variable return, et cetera. Right. Platforms like Kickstarter, which are yeah. sort of rewards based, right. is is not, I think, what the question is focused on, but but rather. You know, the legislation that is coming under the Jobs Act, which mm -hmm. would allow mm -hmm. companies to actually issue equity to the crowd mm -hmm. um, to solicit, you know, publicly and to, uh, to actually be able to source capital yeah. ultimately from unaccredited investors on microfinanced amounts and yeah. give away equity, not T-shirts. Um, but it's got to be, really, it's gotta be really transparent. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be some real, real oh, early yeah. disappointments of, yeah. it, was your equity... Are you getting paid after everybody else gets paid back? Or are you getting paid from dollar one of profit? It's a, it's a huge, it's a huge discussion. Is the short answer, and there are there are we'll pros, the lobby there are the anticipated panel. pros and lots of anticipated. So, but, cons but I would to say that. to your question, I don't think you know venture capital as we know it is going away anytime soon, and I think you know it's it's actually really interesting. It seems as if it's a very democratic way of doing things, but it's actually potentially very dangerous because the SEC exists and the hoops that a company has to go through before they do their IPO and the filings, they're meant to protect individuals who are not accredited investors. 
and can't afford to lose the money. So I think it's, you know, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, it probably, I want to do it one, probably one, comes back to what Gary said about yeah. people likely to yeah. lose money. I want to do one more artist metaphor. When you're looking for a VC, think of a VC as an A&R guy. Uh, you may have the greatest company in the world, and you go to a guy, and he's a clean tech investor, he's, or he invests in biomedical appliances. You got to find the right fit. So you should do your research, and it's real easy on Crunchbase or whatever to see what people have invested in. Because I've seen people say, well, get me a meeting with so-and-so. I said, they're never going to give you a dime. You're so far out of their sweet spot. It's like taking Prince in to meet with the head of, uh, with Mike Dungan in, in Nashville at Universal Music saying, so what do you think? It's got to it's be a good fit. And Mike Dungan's a great guy, but he don't think he would have signed Prince. <laughs> Time for at least one more question. I just have a brief comment on Kickstarter. There was a really interesting article in uh, the New York Times Magazine about Zach Braff's campaign to fund a movie and whether um, there were ethical issues, if not legal issues, raised by uh, someone who was making $350,000 an episode uh, during several seasons of Scrubs trying to raise $2 million, which essentially got him $2 million in free advertising <laughs> that he then pocketed uh, and now is... You know, his whole thing was, we don't want control from major studios. And that's exactly what he went and did. So, interesting. good read. I'm going to defend Zach Braff for a minute. <laughs> because someone in his production office so actually He was reached... really good in Oz, the great <laughs> no, powerful. No, no. He's like, I am from New Jersey, and it is the sequel to Guard State. But that, that aside, no, his, you know, it's interesting, because his production company reached out to us because... They wanted to, you know, talk to us about using the Backplane platform to create something that would sort of be a production diary, um, so that the people who did give money could follow the film um, during the whole production and get close to them. And it's something that, you know, he was he's going to pay for himself so that he can give something back to the people who did funded it. So I think, you know, he really d did have his heart in the right place. I don't think that. You know, it's you know he was trying to take money from people to you know to their detriment and to line his own pockets. You know, you know his producer said all the money they raised is going into, you know, the production. And I'm in negotiations with her right now to see you know they don't want to pay my standard rates because you know they say every dollar they pay to me is not going to go into the production of the film. So, just that's a little aside that I don't think he's he's really a big evil movie star. <laughs> there, there's always another side to every story. I mean, just... And, and actually, if you think about it, just one final point. There, there's all this noise about uh, Pandora, Sound Exchange, the Recording Academy, artists, et cetera, and everyone's saying, oh, Pandora's trying to get less uh, artists to accept less money. And that may be the, the dominant theme in the story that's being reported. There's another side to the story, which is labels may want rates set very high, particularly under the statutory rate, so that Pandora has to go and do direct deals. Well, what happens in a direct deal? The artists don't get their 50-50 split under the statute. So, you know, that's, that story's not coming out. And you can look at all of these issues, and, and in evaluating a strategic relationship, it helps to think multidimensionally. You've got to understand all of the different issues that people are bringing to the table. If you've got different people bidding to do a deal with your company, you've got potential investors, you want to think in multiple dimensions about that. Don't just follow the normal narrative about what's going on, because many times it may just not be accurate. I think we're probably out of time. Oh, Thanks, let's just everyone. Keep going. Any closing thoughts from the panel? Any, anything pithy about innovating around Google Glass and <laughs> augmented reality? Or? <laughs> David, had, David had Google Glass. Where's David? I want, yeah. 
I've only come back with the Google there Glass. Is. There, there he is. is. There he is. Wait a minute. Were you here when I was talking good about you? Oh, I didn't know you were in the room. That wasn't a suck up again. Did you, did you record it? I didn't know you were there. No, just really be smart about your deals. I mean, and also when you do a deal, remember the deals on paper. I'll, I will tell you a story about a very large company somewhere near Cupertino that we did a deal with when I was at EMI who basically, when they violated the deal, they said, yeah, we did, and in four or five years, we'll get to court, and you'll figure it out. In the meantime, we're not going to sell your music on our large music platform. So just make sure that, that, that you have good working partnerships and make sure the people that you're getting into business with are people that you'd want to share breakfast with, in most cases. You don't always have to, but it's a good Small thing. Small world. It is, a, and it comes around. All right, panel, thank you. Thanks, everybody.